Welcome to this episode of Studio Z. This time it's a remote Studio Z. We're not in our usual location. We're actually here in London with a completely mobile setup, so a little bit different. But by traveling, we're able to get some really excellent guests. And so today I'm super excited to be joined by Guy Pajani, who's going to introduce himself and tell you a little bit about his story right now. Guy, introduce yourself to the audience. You know, is there any, what do you do? Uh, thanks for having me. Sorry for disappointing without the British accent uh, <laughs> uh, on uh, despite being in London. Uh, so I'm the uh, founder of Sneak. Uh, Sneak is a, um, a developer security company. Uh, basically, our premise was that as DevOps came along, uh, security as it worked in waterfall era uh, was not fit for purpose, couldn't keep up, uh, and you had to rethink security. Uh, and kind of go from an auditor mindset that you know something funnels through you and you assess it mm. to more of a platform approach that helps developers embrace security. That that had to happen, and that the way to do that was uh, to build a developer tooling company that tackles security. So that we build solutions that developers actually want to use. Um, and so that's the kind of core premise of uh, of Sneak. We're about um, uh, eight and a half years old now. Wow. Uh, we're about a thousand people. Wow. Uh, so it's grown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been an interesting journey. I'm sure we'll talk about some parts of it. Uh, and yeah, just like, like I said a little bit before that, I, uh, I'm a, a born and raised in Israel, went through the cyber parts of the Israeli army, spent about sort of nine years in uh, cyber sort of application security companies yeah. uh, through a couple of acquisitions, you know, from uh, an Israeli company got acquired by a Canadian company, got acquired by IBM. Left founded a web performance company that got me into DevOps uh, and uh, sold that to Akamai, where I was a CTO for a bunch of years. Uh, and then, yeah, I moved to Canada somewhere in that journey and then moved to London with, uh, with Akamai before founding Sneak. So, yeah, that's my journey. Wow, I mean, and what a great introduction and so much alignment with, you know, with um, Zuplo and what we're doing, the, like, the focus on developers and that developer first story. So I'd love to get into that. Um, one of the things we, we talk about a lot um, uh, on this is sort of engineering and product culture. That's probably where we're going to spend most of our our time. Um, and in particular, we, we like to talk about um, uh, how your company is deployed. And so, you know, we had the CTO of Atlassian on recently, a very remote company with folks in um, Australia, I think the founders are in, and then the headquarters were in San Francisco, and Rajiv was in Bellevue. How do you think about Sneak? Is it a remote company? Like, how do you think about that? Um, I guess I think about Sneak as a distributed company. Hmm. Uh, and we're remote friendly, we have quite a few remote employees, uh, but we do like our hubs and our offices and the advantages they offer. Um, it, it has like an I think a, a relevant uh, origin story here. So when uh, when I started Sneak, I uh, you know, initially was kind of wondering whether or not I, I was in London, you know, whether or not I want an office in Israel, mm -hmm. uh, and I was kind of keen to tap my network over there and meet some amazing people there. Uh, but uh, I was I've had experience in the journey uh, in which multiple offices created very much an us versus them mentality, hmm. uh, and I was quite concerned about that. You know, I got pretty badly burned uh, before, uh, and so kind of eventually kind of realized you know I really want to tap into that sort of you know Israel talent. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I found a couple of great co-founders, Danny and Asaf, who joined me to lead that branch, and we we decided to build the company as this sort of two-headed monster that you know it coexisted it wasn't about one being a headquarter versus the other okay uh, and we uh, we we made all sorts of rules that would uh, try to prevent the us versus them um, kind of a, a 
reality, right? So by us versus them, you mean, you know, because you've got Office A and Office B, they become sort of cliques almost and they're... Yeah, and oftentimes it's functional. You would sort of say whatever, the uh, the front end would be built over here and the back end okay. over there, or you would say, uh, you know, a certain product would be developed in one spot or the other, or what is very common, by the way, in Israel, which is R&D might be in Israel, so development and engineering might be in Israel, and then maybe the go-to-market is elsewhere. Got it. Um, and those, they don't really allow you to to tap into the sort of the, the true local talent, because yeah. oftentimes there's people that do all sorts of things. They uh, make uh, promotion paths more difficult, but more important is they create oftentimes an adversarial relationship of the next project who wins it, especially okay. when you have two development centers. Right. Um, and so to try and kind of break uh, away from that, what we said was uh, no team will be co-located. So instead of saying uh, uh, that there will be the Israel team, development team, where the team lead and sort of builds that up, and then there would be another one in, uh, in the UK, and this is London and Tel Aviv, we would have every team intentionally be divided. And mm. that creates a certain overhead for the manager and for the team operation, but it, it allows for all sorts of other goodness. But first and foremost, it, it prevents everybody is in it together. Yeah. Naturally, I think your your closest affinity is to the people that sit next to you that are physical proximity and for the people that you work with. And so by creating this you know, team to split, it meant that the company really kind of grew in cohesion, right? Hmm. Because people had, you know, they were both close to their physical kind of close uh, office mates uh, and they were close to their teammates. That are in another that location. Are, might be geographically. Make that real for me. Then it's like the designer could be in London, but the engineer that person's working with could be in 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 Tel Aviv. Yeah, even even kind of within the same role. So a team of you know five people that might have a team lead and four engineers, call it, you know, and then maybe there's a you know a product manager, maybe there's a designer. Uh, they would just be divided roughly evenly, it's never perfect, yeah. between the two locations. So the team might have two engineers and a team lead in one spot, maybe the product manager and two other uh, engineers are in the other location. Um, and so teams are naturally, once you build it that way, the other thing that happens, you know, first of all, again, the team yeah. is, is, is cohesive and, and yeah. it, it isn't about you know, Israel or, or UK, uh, but also once you do that, you establish good habits that allow other offices uh, to interact as well as remote employees because the work naturally needs to become virtual. So the calls, I think the worst realities are the ones in which you have five team members that are local and then, you know, one person is remote. So yeah. for the remote person, that's a very bad experience. Yes. Yeah. But when the team is divided into two locations, it, it, you know, naturally communication happens over text and, you know, in Slack, you know, a lot of things happen over Zoom, documents have to be written. A lot of the hallway conversation, there's a, there's a price for that. You know, you might lose yeah. some of that yeah. sort of brainstorming and we can talk about how we compensated for that. But I think the methodology that evolves uh, really is one that is remote friendly. And so we've, we've kind of built that and we did become remote friendly because of that, even though yeah. it wasn't the intent. And so pretty quickly we had a quarter, somewhere between a quarter and a third kind of fluctuating uh, remote. Today we're actually trying to, you know, within R&D manage that and be a little bit more location based. Okay. Uh, but we still have a substantial amount of uh, remote people uh, because because the practices, the sort of the way the company operates uh, uh, allows them to integrate easily. So there is a lot to unpack here because that's almost the antithesis of what Atlassian said. 
Um, Atlassian, they build these sort of bands of teams that work together. I think I think it's more or less around time zone. How, how different is the time the time between Tel Aviv and London? Yeah, so two hours, and that's an important one. And we've nice. always yeah. we we did break through. We can talk about that, you know, to the east coast. But indeed, yeah. time zones you can't win. And so for yeah. a very long time, we said stay within the sort of the Tel Aviv to London time zone region uh, because you know you can't really win time zones. We did need to deal with the different. Uh, uh, work weeks in Israel, it's Sunday to Thursday uh, versus Monday to Friday, which is most of the rest of the world. Okay, interesting. Okay, so you said you did some things to compensate for this overhead, this sort of transactional overhead. What's some examples of things you did though? Well, I think the, the most obvious one is bringing people together you yeah. know, at a certain frequency. Um, and I think, so you know, really to me, we did these all hands uh, aligned to the planning horizon, uh, frequency that aligned to the planning horizon of the company. Mm. So at the beginning that was three or four months, uh, but really it was also flying three or four people to the other side. When we would fly over, the team that was flying over also got a lot of bonding experience that we would partly save money, we would uh, uh, you know, whatever, rent an Airbnb with a bunch of rooms on it, yep. would sort of be yep. there. There's all sorts of great stories around, you know, coming together. So the the team that was hosting played host. And so there was a big deal of like, whatever, taking you to sort of local food places and some local culture. And then that got reciprocated on the other side when the team traveled to the other spot. Uh, and so I think, I think these all hands event, these kind of physical gatherings were very significant. They made for very intense, very focused planning sessions out of which we came out well aligned with like a, a foundation, a basis for what we're going to work with uh, or what we're going to work on. And and from there we could we could work remotely and we didn't need as much yeah, okay. uh, conversations and so uh, that was very valuable and in some ways it was better than just the occasional hey can I grab you and we'll do a brainstorming session yeah. you know, in the room uh, you know pros and cons and as as um as the company grew it also became kind of more of a more of an effort to to do those uh, but also our planning horizon changed and so we um, uh, we. we delayed them or so they had started to happen um, uh, less frequently um, than the pandemic was a different story and it's like it, it it doesn't this approach of flying everybody together all the time you know does have a cost element to it yeah. and it does have a, a, a size constraint uh, but at the beginning it was very important to create the cohesion and it allowed that sort of alignment foundation and it forced us, you know, I, I oftentimes think that like, you know, board meetings are pretty useless, but more board meeting preparation <laughs> is priceless. You yes. Know, like yeah. Somebody, yeah, the needs to stop and assess, you know, what is it you're going to do? Yeah. And I think similarly here, the preparation towards these all hands, because it was this intense week, it was really to think, what is it that we want to focus on? What is it that is the best use of our time? Yeah. You know, how do we make the most of it? And I think that focus allowed us to eventually build uh, correctly to like basically help us focus our, our actual actions Interesting. how we work. Yeah, yeah, I uh, very much agree on that sort of like forced function of preparation making you step back and you know like the board meeting does a great job of that. Um, so uh, I'm interested to ask a little bit about your, your planning horizons but I will comment actually now, now we've talked more I think you're less antithetical to the Atlassian model. They talk a lot about time zone alignment. They talk a lot about getting people together, yeah. I think, on a quarterly basis. So no surprise that we do the same thing. Zublo's a, a remote company, I think we could say, rather than distribute. We don't have a, an office out of the end. Yeah. Um, but we do get everybody together a couple of times a year. And we'll think, because I think what we, we didn't talk too much about sort of the remote versus offices. Yeah. Uh, but I think I think it's important to emphasize that the, the advantage of the approach I said uh, versus just remote yeah. uh, is that it still has the 
office. Yeah. And so the the energy level from being in the office, especially when you work higher, you know, like longer yeah. hours, yeah. Uh, was very much there. Uh, the talent attraction, so the ability to recruit locally and be a bit more efficient because you're hiring in those locations mm. and building some local brand that came into play. Um, th- there's there's advantages over time as you grow. There's also um, a subsidiary overhead and, and things like that that you know bias you in favor of picking your locations. And so these these locations. That's why I, I think about Snake as a distributed company more so than remote. Yeah. It's remote friendly, but it's more distributed first. Yeah, uh, allowed us to do that. And also when we acquired companies. Um, and we've made a bunch of acquisitions. Yeah. Uh, th- these offices became sort of hubs. Probably most notable is um, uh, we acquired a company in Zurich uh, called DeepCode, which became, uh, they have a lot of relationships with the ETH University over there. Yeah. Uh, and they're big in, in AI based program analysis. And this was about three years ago. So, you know, it's an amazing team. A lot of the work that they do uh, was quite different. Uh, they were very tech heavy, very research heavy because yeah. of sort of the, the, the that's subject domain, uh, and um, it, it, as a result of that, the culture of that office was different. You know? mm. So the way, the approach, the style, and over time, we also added a few people to that office to do other stuff, much of that work, and then we added some people that would work with that team elsewhere. So we worked on uh, dividing that team, but these, these sort of local culture hubs that do have a different uh, weight to them yeah. uh, really came into play. So. You know, again, everything has trade-offs, but I think that was significant, the advantages of the office. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard to argue with that. Actually, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the, you know, that I worked at Facebook had a big central sort of headquarters over in Menlo Park, obviously, in sort of the Bay Area, but had pretty significant satellite offices here in London, and that's what they described like satellites. So you can argue that was sort of a distributed distributed model. Um, the time zone thing, I want to pull on that a little bit more. So Zurich, not far away, pretty similar yeah, time zone, like one hour or something. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you, do you have folks that are more extreme? You must have some folks in on the West Coast now of the States, right? So actually, very select few. So oh, we've, okay. we've uh, uh, somewhat entertainingly, we've acquired uh, a company in Halifax. That's the way we broke through, and that's four hours away from London. That's an unusual yeah. Atlantic yeah. time zone uh, spot. Uh, and then you know that already included some people on the East Coast, yeah. uh, and it did open up the East Coast. And we now have a substantial, I'm not sure how much, you know, number of people on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, and even that Israel to East Coast, which is seven hours difference, is a bit hard. Yeah. And so where we can, you know, today that we're bigger, we do try to uh, to have a little bit of like preferences. Uh, and so maybe you'd rather not have Israel and uh, East Coast, you'd rather have Israel and London and maybe London This and, is the parent uh, team, so you're not going to have an engineer from the East Coast. I, in most cases, it's an exception if you have an engineer on the East Coast, part of a team that's with engineers in Tel Aviv, for example. Correct, yeah. yeah. And it's just it's the sheer logistics of when do you yeah. have the team meeting, you know, yeah. when do you have time. Uh, and so, so we try to, to bias in favor of that. And we have a few exceptions for very talented individuals or people that, for a variety of exception cases, that justify people being further west mm. uh, in the US. But otherwise, we do still try to keep it uh, within that time zone. It's, it's largely true for the company, mm. not just engineering. Uh, but specifically, it's true for engineering. Of course, the exception to that is is sort of Salesforce and, and things like that, people that need to be closer to the customer. Got it, got it, okay, yeah. Makes sense, that makes sense. All right, let's change tack for a minute and talk about um, the sort of nature of the business. So there's, 
um, and the, the, one way of thinking about culture is, are you product-led, are you a design-led company, are you a data-led company? People say Facebook was a data-led company, right? Um, are you design-led, like Instagram is very design-led. How would you describe Snake? Yeah, Snake is clearly a product-led okay. uh, company. I think a lot of what we think about uh, is in service of the product. We define, we talk about user needs, we talk about the, uh, the core premises of um, what does in the original notion, right? What does a developer need to be able to successfully kind of embrace a product? Um, and in fact, the whole uh, kind of creation of Sneak was around saying, let's build a developer tooling company versus a, uh, a security, a cybersecurity company mm. that happened to tackle security. Uh, and so that included a lot of what is a dev tooling company? What do what do developers uh, uh, look for in a product? How does that differ? from what security people look for, what does it imply in brand, uh, but also very much in the product, what is the usability, what are the workflows that we should integrate with, what should be emphasized. Yeah. And then we built some pretty impressive technology, in my opinion, but it was always in service of that. You know, Probably a good example of that is uh, we figured one of the, um, in the beginning we, we built, uh, the, the very first thing we shipped was a command line interface to be yeah. able to scan your application for open source vulnerabilities. So CLI, okay, there's a bunch of like DevX uh, kind of uh, paradigms on it that yeah. are known. And we saw people you know, use it, they, you know, we got some good initial traction of it, but people didn't put it in the build. The build was uh, t uh, too much additional friction for them to put it into uh, because breaking the build is a bigger action. Yeah. It's just a more involved, you need a more consensus from the rest of the team. Uh, and so they didn't really do that. And to try and avoid that, we realized from a product perspective, we needed like a next, next, next workflow with GitHub to just do next, 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 and then install it onto the repo. Um, to be able to do that, we needed to look at the source code of a dependency manifest mm. and be able to say, is there a vulnerability here? So we needed to approximate the dependency tree. We needed to kind of expand that out, which is actually fairly hard technology to right. do. Um, but that facilitated the user experience we wanted, which was do next, 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 and then just we'll monitor the repo for you and uh, we'll, we'll tell you in the pull request whether you're adding a low vulnerable library or not, and hey, when there's a vulnerability we find, we want to open a fixed pull request to you. That user experience description is what drove us, and then we figure out how do we overcome the technology problem okay. to doing it. Our static analysis, the AI-based program analysis, which is incredible tech that I don't fully understand, <laughs> was really in the service of static analysis products being unusable for developers because they're too slow, they're too inaccurate. Uh, and so we needed kind of some new math, but we kept not going into that space because it didn't allow for the user experience that we wanted. And Interesting. So very product uh, driven. So, so I mean, that resonates with, with, with me and what we do at Zuplo. In terms of, well, I think so. Let, I mean, let, let's just explore that for a second. You know, we think very much about we design for the developer persona, which I think is a little bit different to our competitors who I would argue design kind of for the buyer of an organization, so you know, some some very, very senior CIO or something in a large organization mm -hmm. the, the the decision maker. That's not someone we spend a lot of time thinking about other than in the sales process. When we're building the product, we're very laser focused on sort of IC engineering and engineering leadership. Is that a fair reflection of how you think about it? The is. I think the I think the, the core concept of uh, of product led of being product led is right. to anchor on the user versus the buyer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the kind of the, the, the initial kind of perception, the problem we set out to to 
address is the fact that the most important user of the product was the developer yep. uh, because the problem everybody was facing is they just weren't using it. Yeah. So uh, they were producing insecure software. Uh, and so we thought about that as the most important user and you anchor in them. The security is the security person is an important user for us as well. And we just intentionally prioritize the developer uh, in the early days and today we you know we balance them a lot more yeah. as we sort of work with bigger and bigger contexts. Sure. And so I think I think that is that is like very much a part of how your philosophy uh, uh, evolves. I still think that you can uh, you can build products that are that are sort of product led that focus on the buyer and on mm. the commercial. They typically don't align too much to maybe a product led approach. They're more about the business problem and the business pain. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it also varies. I think one of the um, maybe interesting tidbits in Sneak is. Um, so, so we we anchored on 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 uh, being able to break through to that user to that developer, but the distance between the user and the buyer for Sneak is actually quite uh, quite far. Mm. Um, the in, if you're building a product led company and you're building, uh, you know, your user is your buyer when you whatever, um, sure. get them sufficiently engaged. Yeah, yeah. That's easiest, right? Yeah. That's the person deciding to buy. If it's the team lead of that person, that's also like a relatively short distance. And so, uh, whether it's whatever notion or whether it's you know something uh, yeah. uh, that is you know the, the team or maybe an observability product that you can that it's okay for just this team to use. Yeah. Security tends to buy for breadth. You know, it's not practical for a security person to have every director of engineering use a different tool to govern whatever yeah. their code security. Yeah. Um, and so. The, the distance between the developer and that security person is quite high, you know, how many more people you need to jump in. Yeah. And so we, we, we built a product for the user, we built a freemium model to you know, really yeah. be, able, be able to build a good product for the developer and to break through. But from a go-to-market perspective, we had to combine that with also outbound motions or other ways to be able to reach the buyer yeah. and then win them over in significant part thanks to the fact that we've demonstrated developer adoption already. Interesting, interesting. Actually, let, let's just noodle on this, I don't have a better word than religious right now, topic of product-led growth, which has kind of become a dirty word, almost, the, the PLG, and then some people are saying, well, you need sales, which you know, I don't think most folks doing PLG ever argued with that, um, and so versus product-led sales. Any yeah. thought on this? Is it just a meaningless debate? or? Um, I think I think the reality is that uh, uh, the world, and specifically engineering, uh, is increasingly relying on empowered teams, uh, mm. and those teams are seeking tools that are right for them. Mm. And so I think this notion of product-led is indeed biasing for that user. I think we're in a moment of time from a financial markets perspective, right. in which empowerment is the dirty word more so uh, than the, so the product-led. It's it's much uh, because of the more sort of financial constraints that companies are under. Uh, it's harder for some CFO to say, hey, I want my developers to pick the best tool for them. Mm. Uh, and there's much more bias in, in kind of a shift from this best of breeds to best of suites uh, pressure uh, to say, hey, can I use you know Salesforce? And Salesforce has all these like you know dozen other sort of products around it. And can I make do? Can my team manage Is it good with those products? And maybe, maybe in all sorts of spots, it's not the perfect uh, fit for them. Uh, while in 2021, in 2020, I think there was a lot more allowance and affordance for the teams to pick the best product for so it. Is this sort of a, you know, I mean, if we take the extreme sort of, maybe it was a zero interest rate phenomena, yeah. maybe it was just the, the, the hype around recruiting tech and then we saw Elon let go of, you know, 
75% of the Twitter engineering team and the thing is more or less still working, whatever yeah. you think of Twitter, I don't want to get into that. Um, you think that's sort of part of the same thing, this disempowerment? You think those are related? I think it's a it's a pendulum swing. At the end of yeah. the day, uh, for most uh, tech businesses, for sure, and increasingly most companies become tech businesses, the vast majority of their spend is on employees, it's on sort of the payroll. Yeah. And so if you can make people more productive, you're providing a lot of value. Right. Uh, and, and so I think in the long run, because uh, you know, people are also getting more powerful. You know, AI now is demonstrating sure. that even more. Yeah. But an individual in the company can do so much more than they could have before. And and because of that, we're reliant on their productivity. And because of that, we're empowering them to to do more. Because that's what makes the business competitive. You know, makes it successful. And so I think that trend will continue. I think we're you know we were probably too far uh, in yeah. one side. You know, with the pendulum yeah. swing. I think we're probably swinging quite far the other side because. A lot of companies need to become profitable quickly, yeah. uh, and so they have to tighten it up, and they might be sacrificing some long-term yeah. uh, benefits from it. Um, but so I think we'll, you know, we'll settle somewhere in the middle. So I don't anticipate product-led growth uh, 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 shifting or changing. What I do worry about is it's actually very, very hard to embrace product-led growth when you haven't done it before. You know, mm -hmm. developers as an example, you'd be very hard pressed to find to name a single company. That has started and established scale in a in a in a non-developer friendly fashion, and then built a developer uh, led uh, motion as well. And did that all later? Yeah. yeah, it's it's very very hard to to find those. I mean, they might exist, but they're I, I, it's hard for me to think of one, and definitely there aren't many. Um, and so, if if people in this current climate build more companies that that abandon that, it's going to be hard for those companies to adapt. We, uh, to the product, and it might mean that in sort of three years' time or something, there will be a new cohort of companies yeah. that are basically looking to take a product-led approach right. to the companies that are formed this year uh, that might be taking. We talk about approach. this all the time. Very inspired by Auth Zero, um, you know, I think they did a great job, and you know, I'll talk about them versus Okta in my opinion. Um, you know, Okta tried to copy what they did. Uh, ended up buying the company, as you know. Um, I think it's very, we, we talk about, you know, we still want to focus very much on Zoopla on small customers and winning hobbyist developers because it's, it's, we think it's impossible to build a big enterprise centric company and then sort of move down market, which sounds very similar to what you're saying about build a, a non product led company and become a product led company. It's not the same. I think you can build a very successful sort of sales led. Uh, a company that focuses on the buyer mm. that does go down market that does offer products to sort of you know small small businesses, businesses yeah. that are more packaged and opinionated that uh, that have you know kind of less customizability yeah. that maybe serve as a slice of functionality so I think that doesn't actually happen I think it's the bottom up versus sales uh, uh, sort of top down sort the of sales approach that I think is different Okta and Okta is interesting I would I would claim that both Okta and Okta were right because Okta they uh, they shipped a product that it's it's sort of minimum unit of value the smallest thing the smallest offering was your entire company for all of the SaaS products that you can is going to log in in this fashion yeah that's not a bottom up product that's sure. a that's a top down significant heavy duty yeah. decision versus Auth zero and they said well our minimum unit is like someone is adding some role based access control access control to you know some app or the other uh, and so. That happens. That's a small decision made in many, 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 many different places. 
Uh, and and so you want to really reduce the friction and allow that uh, that individual to pick off the zero for it. Mm-hmm. I think what's very hard, and we've seen that, is for a company like Octal with that muscle of top down to go off and win the hearts and minds of the developers yeah, exactly. uh, and yeah. uh, and bring a product like Off Zero had before. So that's, that's why I think I think the the move to acquire Off Zero financials aside, you can debate those. But yeah. I think in terms of bringing them in versus uh, the build. Uh, had a lot of merits to it. Was very smart. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, let's talk about company values. So, do you have um, you know that the Amazon has its like fourteen statements. Facebook has its posters and its uh, these yeah. notes that it writes. And there's lots of examples. Um, Atlassian have lots of very swearword laden, very Australian um, uh, values like don't bleep the customer and so yeah. on. Does Sneak have things like this? So we do. Um, I think. Um, if, if you if you start from the philosophy, the goal is alignment, right? Like what you want is you want uh, everybody in the company to be rowing in the same direction. Yeah. Uh, and you know from a from a cultural perspective, but also a ways of working. And cultural is the people you bring in in terms of their sentiment and such, but a lot of it is the ways of working. Yeah. Um, you want some core principles that, especially as you grow, they uh, they 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 act as these kind of you know guidelines uh, yeah. to to try and maintain alignment. They're they're not the only way to maintain alignment, uh, but they're an important part of it, and they need to have some longevity. And so uh, at the beginning we didn't define these values because you knew everybody and you hired everybody, and uh, and then. I forget, I think we're maybe about 40 people, I think when we did the sort of the first values workshop, maybe less even, uh, maybe in the 20s. Um, and, uh, and to me it was just because it was important to just sort of sit down and have everybody agree on uh, what is it that we value and we don't, and to have everybody involved in it. So we did like a little values workshop. At the time I think we came out, like it was very hard for us to come out with like 11 <laughs> items that we were there and then nobody remembers 11 items like just I don't know how 14 kind of really works yeah, yeah. it's just you know it's just very very hard so you know we've reduced them we've gone through a bunch of iterations uh, at some point we get down to four now we have five values okay. and I think they serve as things to refer to and they're simple enough that you can give them different interpretations but they lead to the same spots I can give an example um, so uh, a good one for instance is care deeply you know mm. Snake is not a good place for a nine-to-five job it is a place in which we we care deeply and care deeply has multiple meanings it has caring about uh, about individual employees and you know we care about people yeah. uh, we care about the environment we're a one percent uh, pledge one percent uh, company on it and we have a big snick impact motion and we care about that but we also care about our company our customers and you know care about their success at some point uh, our CFO asked me is hey, should we have some form of like a compete to win value and things like that and you know we discussed this and like we don't really need that because like people care about one another you know if a salesperson asks an engineer for uh, for help, they, they help them because mm. they want to help them succeed, and so we we drive a lot out of that caring, and you know it can backfire, and sometimes caring can result in uh, you know uh, being overly sensitive or sort of not raising you know a topic. So each of these things have a thing that you might be you might need to battle, and I think over time we've we've evolved it. Mm. Um, maybe I'll give you another example which is relevant. We have a uh, a value called ship it. Uh, you know, we believe in iterations. We believe in, in just sort of get it out there. You know, there's even some hubris in sort of thinking you're smarter than the world and you're going to get in your cave and build something for a year and come out and sort of have it be perfect. And so we we ship it, you know, and ship it is it's such a useful term. It's like, okay, just ship it, you know, like we're talking mm-hmm. about this thing, just ship it, let's see what happens. 
Um, over time, uh, in R&D, the value of the company is they'll ship it, but in R&D, we talk a lot more about ship it and own it, mm. uh, because what has happened is clearly you, you bias, if you, if you put the weight on delivering it, uh, then you might you know, have, have come at the expense of uh, some of the uh, quality controls that you put in place before. Yeah. Uh, and so, but I, I think, you know, we talk about care deeply, we talk about ship it, um, uh, and, you know, I think that, so the latest, we're not going to go through them all, but the latest that we've added uh, was always be learning. Uh, I think we call it learn always. Um, and I think that's an emphasis on individual growth. You know, one of the challenges as the company grows is, uh, is when growth outpaces talent, you know, when right. individuals can't grow to the scope that the company has grown and therefore you need to shrink their role or in more extreme cases, move them mm -hmm. out. Uh, and so emphasizing and investing in helping people always be learning. Mm -hmm. uh, it also has another interpretation, which is, you know, it, uh, I, this isn't a value, but a good phrase we often use is you either win or you learn. Mm. When, when we lose things, when you fail thing uh, in something, uh, you want to celebrate learnings. And so, this is, okay, learn always. Um, and so, I, I think values evolve over time. They have to be concise. It's okay that they're a little bit ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, as long as uh, as long as they drive behavior. Um, and yeah, they do get a little bit formalized. We had a at some point we had a ridiculously easy to work with. Uh, that was a value. that was a value that was ridiculously easy to work with. Meaning the product or the people or both. Yeah, okay. That, I mean, you know, it was the easy use of the product. It yeah. was around how we work with it, and actually even came back as like these were some words that a customer has sort of told us mm. uh, on it, and, uh, and then Geva, our associate well, at the time, you know, was uh, popularized it for us, and so it, it was a uh, it was a good term. Some point sort of felt almost like. Um, uh, I don't know if it's just sort of the corporate issue of it, but sort of felt like we wanted to be a bit more, um, uh, I don't know, sort of uh, refined maybe in some of our wording. And so that one was maybe, uh, that's one I miss a little bit, but we chose to move it Yeah, out. I like that one. Um, I mean, ship it, I, I will say, almost everyone I've spoken to or great founders or leaders I've worked with, like this notion of, of like move fast, code is cheap, like ship quickly, iterate, yeah. learn, get it into the market. People yeah. think they have more time than they actually do. Yeah, yeah, and you, you know, the idea that you know, if you if you're not embarrassed by the first thing you put out, you, you ship too late. It seems like a very common thing that people, people behind great companies really, um, really value. So it was interesting. You said you were about twenty to forty people. You can't remember exactly when you did this values workshop, but before that, there were no posters. There were no written values. It was kind of emergent culture. It was like you, you, were, you were close enough to. You were a solo founder from Bert, is that correct? So I, I had two slightly late co-founders that okay. kind of stuff. And they were very significant in yeah. everything around yeah. the company, but also in the shaping of the culture. Okay. And they were also the ones forming the Israeli office. I see. Okay, yeah, you mentioned that. Actually. I mean, yeah. Um, so folks are close enough together that just the the behaviors you folks are exhibiting can be picked up on others and that, that that's kind of where the culture emerges from. And then you get everyone together in a group and say, let's talk about how this company behaves or the things we like about it and sort of try to distill or, you know, boil down the values that, that came out of the workshop. Is that is that? Yeah, correct. And I think it, it, it really, at the end of the day, it's supposed to give us something to point to when we think something is wrong, mm. something to uh, refer to when we're interviewing a person that we're hiring, something. So it really is once you get to enough scale. And I do think that it starts being reasonable at that sort of 20 person range because, yeah. you know, when one person interviews, how likely is it that they're using the same traits or looking for the same properties as mm. another person? So you need to get to some size uh, in which it matters. Also, 
to an extent at the beginning, you know, like it, it, as, as long as, as myself or later me or one of my co-founders uh, were interviewing every individual person, then then we basically act as a bit of a values filter on right. it. At right. some point you need to start quantifying it and it almost kind of empowers the team because we talked about this and now others might be kind of allowed to 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 filter for values yeah. uh, because we've discussed what those values are. Okay. Um, but I do think that, that probably the toughest part is reducing them to a few. It's like in any prioritization exercise. It's like this is also important. Mm. Fine. Mm-hmm. But you need to pick the most important items. Otherwise they you dilute it, the value of everything. It's not prioritization if it doesn't hurt, right? Yeah. Um, funny, so you've answered about three questions I had ahead of time here. So I spoke with Anna Debenham was your first product manager at Snake, is that right? Uh, correct. She's actually joined as a developer. She's a uh, um, Trying to think. So she, you know, Anna first declines to join the company, and I chased her and chased her and chased her, and eventually I managed to get her to take a contract with the company. <laughs> and I think that contract would have placed her as, I think, uh, maybe our third employee after the co-founders or something like that. Uh, and then I think three months later, she actually converted to an employee. She's uh, been an amazing part of sort of shaping uh, Snake's culture. On yeah. That. Yeah. Okay. So I was she, asking. She moved some... to product management after. I didn't realize that. Okay. So I was. She, I asked her some things to talk to you about you answered quite a lot like when should we when should you solidify so it sounds you know if one measure is the number of people like 20 to 40 but it sounds like when you're hiring is starting to scale up and you can't meet everybody where you yeah. can't have regular touch points with the whole company that's the point where you need to build these tools to the propaganda of yeah. the sneak if you will um i was told about a, a book called the culture map was this the thing you folks did? Tell me about that. Yeah, I think, uh, so the multi-locations also came with multiple cultures. Uh, and it's it's interesting, you know, I, uh, specifically we had the UK and, uh, and Israel, uh, and those are very different cultures, especially yeah. when it comes to, you know, bluntness, and uh, there's this uh, trait that's in the Culture Map uh, book, I think mentioned as well, and in Negotiation Tactics, which is how long of a pause do you need in a conversation to interject and start talking. And I think in Israel, it's like a negative number. Yeah, of you just need to notice that someone is kind of uh, trailing off in their talks if you're going to interject. Um, you know, and I, I would also say, I'm an Israeli, I live in Canada, and I'm uh, in a very polite place. place. And, I, and, I, and I feel like I, I, I would joke when I was in Canada that I'm, a, I'm a, a very polite Israeli or a very assertive Canadian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyways, I, I, I am a firm believer that, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of problems in an organization, especially as it's coming up, uh, result are the result of miscommunication. Hmm. Uh, and so over-communication was a big deal, helping people communicate correctly. And a, a big part of that uh, has to do with cultural differences. Like when you add cultural differences and uh, advices, you're strengthening the company in the sense that you're bringing uh, a strength. I think the... The sort of the, the fearlessness uh, that came out of Israel, including maybe the, some of the brashness yeah. and some of the draft, was key to Snake's success, as was the more methodical approach and the uh, sensitivity to developer experience, some of the product architecture that came from the London ecosystem. And I think Snake is the combination of the two. I think that made Snake what it is, yeah. including additions that were added after. Um, uh, however, they also represent opportunity for conflict. Uh, and so what we've done is we've invested a lot in, in talking through those. Uh, and you know, one of the examples was uh, the Culture Map book that we, you know, we encouraged people to read, which just talks about it. It's, you know, it's a great book. It's one of multiples of it. Mm. Um, but I think, I think the key is as you, as you grow, and you know, for context, we've grown from 
uh, 23 people at the end of one year to 84 people in the next year to 250 people in the next year. Wow. And it's like big jumps. And it's not like everybody's like laid back during the time. Everybody's mm -hmm. super busy as mm -hmm. we grow. And throughout that time, I would always get the question of how do we preserve culture? You know, how do you, uh, how do we not lose it? So first of all, I always loved getting that question because it meant uh, at any point in time, people felt there was a thing to preserve. Mm. You know, people mm. felt like there was a strength, and that, that's true all the way through to today. Yeah. Uh, and that I think is a, is a measure of success. Yeah. Um, but but it but it is indeed a challenge, and I think I think a lot a lot of that comes down. Like there's incentives. Uh, you know, what do you reward? What do you uh, course, yeah. what do you penalize? Uh, and then there's just investing in communication. Mm. Um, so the culture map was one of the ways to do it. But I would just. If, if you are a remote company or a distributed company, you have to make people aware of what might be deemed urgent yeah. <laughs> uh, for, uh, for you know, uh, in, in the British phrasing of it, might totally go over the head yeah. of an Israeli and what might be deemed uh, uh, offensive for a Brit might be, you know, total regular speak to an Israeli. Uh, and, <laughs> and those are just like two of many examples of it. Uh, so you want to raise that awareness, you want to really really try to flag them and then get those people on the call or talk to someone else on the team who is has a better personal relationship on it. You just want to diffuse it as yeah. quickly as you can, but you also want to just sort of surface awareness to it up front. Yeah, yeah. So you're reminding me of two graphics that I, th I think we should actually put on screen. One is from Harvard Business Review that have this nationality culture map in modern terms it's not always safe to talk about this so I, you know i do this in sort of perhaps clumsily but it's uh on the x-axis it is i think the um comfort with small talk and not wanting to spend small talk and get down to business and on the y-axis it is i think it's sort of i don't know i can't think of the right words almost abrasiveness with you know being confrontational versus non-confrontational and yeah israel and russia are, i think on top left in one yeah. corner uk was actually quite central canada was you know at the other the other end and so i remember when i was at microsoft i we acquired a russian company and um that actually became azure api management actually um and definitely felt that, that that difference. And then there's another one which is a very funny meme, which is what British people say, what they actually mean, and what other people yeah. hear. So we'll we'll put those on screen yeah. for for a second. Maybe yeah, it's pretty uh, amusing. Uh, a funny one for a uh, for a dress up, and I don't remember the specific ones. But when when someone says you know semi whatever casual formal or whatever sports uh, <laughs> whatever formal I don't even know the sort of the terms of it yeah. what does it mean and in Israel it's like oh that's the thing you wore for your wedding <laughs> or the, uh, you know, like the most formal you've ever uh, you've ever done so there's a bunch of those and uh, I think it's real I think we got to acknowledge it and deal with it right there's definitely some differences okay um, one thing I'm curious about what we haven't talked about much um, as a distributed company are you folks heavily written reading writing culture so for example I think um Facebook was not a heavy reading writing culture. If if someone came to me and said, "Where is the spec for this thing we're building?" I'd be like, "Wow, you haven't been here very long. Like, we really didn't have sort of specs often. Um, it was all done through collaboration, very sort of agile ideals, I guess. Whereas at Stripe, I think Patrick Collison Down was a heavy reading of like you wrote long papers and you read all day, all night. Where does Sneak fall on it? Yeah. First of all, I just sort of challenge a little bit, sort of saying that written or not written is 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 a, a nice to agile. I mean, you can be like very heavily written uh, and still be very agile. It's mm. not written implies uh, declaring your intent and sort of putting them in text, sure. as opposed to like the level of specificity 
uh, the new habit and so I take that from the the mantra in which is a collaboration over documentation. So I, I think that's where I where I take that from from the agile. Yeah, but I, I take your point. Yeah, yeah I, I'd sort of say we're about sort of midway. So the fact that we worked, you know, in a more distributed fashion, the fact that there were the the um, you know the difference in the work week. Yeah, uh, where yeah. one day uh, uh, one team was off versus uh, uh, the other every week. Um, I think all of those led to still needing to discuss and declare intents a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, but we did bias, and I think today we're like a little. Today we're much more sort of structured, but it's also just the sheer size. Yeah. Uh, biased in favor of informal communication. So there was a lot of written down things, but oftentimes they were on Slack channels right. and in conversation. The information was available. Um, and I think that worked very well when we were small. And at some point, it became a little bit of a detriment. Like Slack is a powerhouse. Uh, sort of a firehose of information. We are, you know, we're a thousand-person company, and there's practically no internal email in the company. Uh, yeah. Internal emails are, are you know, yeah. announcements and things like that. I think that yeah. those don't really happen. Uh, and Slack is, you know, for many years, including today, is is an unmanageable beast. You know, yeah. people come into it if they're not used to it, and that's just this volume of information. Uh, but once kind of harnessed, I think the casual conversation. That you have within that is written documentation, and it has repeatedly demonstrated that someone new coming into a domain yeah. uh, can go into that Slack channel and see not just the decision, but the decision-making process mm. uh, that happened. And so, I think that has been true for Snake, which is we've, yeah. uh, we've been very written, but oftentimes written as in kind of constant conversations, uh, as opposed to like, hey, here's the precise specifications, which we've, we do a decent amount of, yeah. uh, and today more, but yeah. at the beginning we were uh, much more like case by case on it. Got it, that's very interesting. I've got to say actually, and to the people at Slack, I don't think there's anywhere where I want AI summarization capabilities more than Slack. Yeah. And it's you know. available. It's oh, is it? Okay, I haven't yeah. seen that. It's, I mean, that's, yeah. please, thank you, let's do that very quickly. Um, so, I mean, I, I, we're coming towards the end now, but I, I obviously we talk about culture a lot. Um, I rarely get to have someone with such deep security expertise. Like, tell me about how how should one think about security and engineering culture? Like, well, it's a thing. I think sneaks kind of obviously a big part of what you do. How how do you talk about that to other organizations? What does it mean internally inside Sneak? So I think security is uh, sometimes hard to embed into engineering uh, or in software because it's naturally invisible. You know, hmm. it doesn't hurt until it hurts really bad. Right. Uh, and and as a result of that, it's not that developers don't care about security, but really two things are holding them back from from tackling it correctly. You know, one is that they don't see it. You know, they don't. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they it has to be made more visible for them to actually notice it. They forget about it. It's easy to forget about. And the second is that it's just too hard. Mm. Uh, and so, as an industry, that's oftentimes the, the things that you need to tackle. Sometimes yeah. that's a lot of what Sneak does, which is raise visibility, tell you about a problem, and then make it easy to address it. Mm. Um, and I think the challenge we always kind of encounter. Uh, when, when we deal with that, it's just what's the right level of noise. Like you, you, if I come in and I tell you about a problem again and again and again and again, yeah. you might not like me very much. Yeah. Uh, even if I'm right every single time yeah. that I'm telling you. And so I think I think balancing that uh, uh, is, is probably a never-ending struggle for us, and we always try to juggle that. Uh, I, I, at some point, I think that has we've kind of moved past that. But at some point, there was an interesting conflict between the the positivity 
of the DevOps era mm. of being so pro-user and the user is always right and accepting and saying when you got something, you know, it, it, like just being very, very uh, in favor of the user mm. and the maybe more adversarial thinking that you need a bit for security to say, well, what if mm. the user is not nice? What if the user is, is an adversary? What if they try to do something incorrect to abuse the system. Mm. Um, I think I think we're a little bit past that. I think that was more the early days of DevOps that we're just trying to be uh, um, you know, find the right balance. And yeah. so I see it in pockets, but I think that's less the concern. Um, today, I think the reality is that the rate of uh, sort of software development is accelerating at a compounding pace. Right. You know, you've had DevOps, you've had cloud, even before that you have Agile, now you have AI. We're writing software and changing software faster and faster and faster. Yeah. Uh, and there is no way for anybody but the entity producing that code mm. <laughs> to, uh, to, uh, to be able to inspect it and say whether it is secure or not. And so I think it is critical in, to be able to sort of build secure applications to embed that into uh, into software development, and I, I think there's there are evolving practices, and I'm I'm unhappy about where they are yet around embedding that into software development methodologies. Do we talk about our vulnerability backlog in the sprint, uh, mm. you know, in the daily meetings and in the sort of the planning meetings? Do we um, uh, you know do we reward developers that have spent extra time? So that uh, they uh, they build something securely versus not, and so I think there's a lot that can be done. I think uh, ops is a good role model in many ways. There are many things that we've done, taking the world of operations from the department of no and the naysayer and the sort of you know it's just it's just downside protection to being perceived and accepted as a as an enabler to being accepted as a as a you know if you're if you're good at DevOps. Uh, then it actually is a top-line uh, advantage to the mm -hmm. business. Uh, so security is on that journey. In the meantime, what I what I would love to see, and I think if you're sort of a forward-thinking uh, engineering leader, is to think about how do you introduce security-related ceremonies and, and mentions mm. into your process. And then subsequently, you need to figure out how to make it easy. I think the tools are there, you know, sleek, clearly kind of one option. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think a lot of it now is just, just you need it noticed. You yeah. need to raise it uh, yeah. uh, because otherwise you're not going to do anything. Uh, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and it's that sort of prevention versus cure, and the tensions about you know, yeah, getting rewarded for the cure and not for the prevention because you you know you didn't. It's not visible what you prevented because it didn't yeah. happen, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes a, a negative uh, selection bias on it. If I'm if I'm allowed a rant, you know, which is like. So, so you know, uh, I'm very. Ha I was very happy in terms of like the ecosystem to sort of see, for instance, GitHub start reporting on security alerts. Yeah, yeah. The security alerts they provide today are are very lacking. I think mm. they, they'll admit that, which mm. is they report far, far fewer issues than are sort of around. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter really if it's intentional or technology gaps. I think most of it's technology gaps. Yeah. Um, but the problem is once you start getting alerts and those alerts do not cover. They're, they're not actually good, but you've been getting alerts, you think you're covered. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just dangerous. You know? Oh, that's, right. Uh, yeah. Like basically when you think you're okay, like when you start relying on saying, if there's a problem, this will tell me. Um, so it, it's a very tricky balance. Like you want to raise visibility and it needs to be just at the edge of annoying. Right, uh, right. You know, just right. to be, you know, so that it's usable. 
Um, and then, you know, again, the leadership within engineering needs to be, needs to promote looking at these as indicators of how you can build better software oh, as opposed to sort of bothersome things. Well, one thing that strikes me with this is though is that is a, a trade-off between, you know, we talked about ship it being like one of the, your cultural goals and that means sometimes moving fast and cutting corners in some ways, right? It means like the product might not, you know, you know that the user would want X and you don't do it because yeah. you'll, you'll, you suspect you'll get some feedback that is, you know, that's my thinking is, I think they want it but nine times out of ten, I'm wrong, and they want something yeah. else. You know, VJ talked about this in an interview um, we did with him. How do you balance that when it comes to security, right? Like, security is, you know, a lot of overhead. I'm only putting this out for a few users. Is security where I should cut some corners? Um, look, it, it, it is a balance. And so, you know, security is about risk management. And especially mm. at the beginning, you have nothing to lose. Right. <laughs> so, to right. an extent, you want to right. ship it. Um, few things can take down your business uh, overnight uh, as much as a massive security issue. Right. right. Uh, and so, so at the beginning, you have less to lose. You'll probably end up sort of investing a little bit less in it. Right. You also, I think at the beginning, what you're really seeking is you're seeking security culture. So you want people to just sort of raise. It's really simple things like just mm. put in your feature plans in the template for your feature plans. Mm. Ask, are there security implications? Right. Mm. In your code review question, just ask. So, and you don't need it to be too systemized yet. Mm. As you grow, you need to evolve into having a security program. You need, yeah. to, you need to bring yourself to a place in which you can uh, be able to, to attest, you'd be able to mm. sort of have some guarantees or some confidence that anything that made it to production has been at least through this type of diligence. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's the transition. And that's also, that transition happens again and again as you uh, invoke of yeah. new projects or or things like that. If you don't have, it's a little bit like the sort of the dev uh, adoption at the beginning. If you if you don't think about security, if you don't mention security, if security is just like I really don't care right now from the beginning, it's going to be that much harder for you to instill that after. Yeah. And employees will see that as big brother, as you know, just sort of some onerous. If you instill at the beginning, they can perceive that as. You know, we care about our customers. We perceive security as an aspect of quality, and we don't want to uh, yeah. abuse the trust those customers gave us. Yeah. And so, we want to do it. You just don't have to have it be a system right away. Yeah. Um, I do think today, as startups, we're seeing uh, more and more uh, demand from early stage startups to um, to have SOC two compliance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and I think the, the the reason for that is because you know the, the world has kind of demonstrated that security is important. You know, yeah. their buyers, their customers are saying, "Give me something to show me that you care about security." Yeah. Uh, and I think what I it, compliance does not equal security, but it does create a motivator. So what I like about that trend is that it now can earlier on in your journey uh, give you an actual ROI that is not just about protecting the downside, but yeah. also improving the upside yeah. of security. So if you figure out how to, SOC2 is the most repeated examples, especially when you're a B2B company. Uh, but uh, in general, if you, if you find ways to highlight your investments in security uh, to your customers, that can lead to better business. Yeah, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. It comes back to culture being a tool for telling folks in a very encoded way what you care about as an organization, right? And you know, one of the things we talk about being sort of we're a gateway or mission critical to a lot of our customers. If we go down, it's lights out yeah. for that customer. So we have a notion of if this you're touching a mission critical part of the software, we call it tier zero mission critical. The production gateway is sacrosanct, it's sacred, right. you know, that can yep. never Super go down. Yeah. And so if you're touching a part of code that can affect that, then 
the, the level of sort of scrutiny, checks, attention to detail goes up much, much higher. Whereas if you're, you know, I don't know, we have some like side projects yeah. like Rate My Open API, it's less of a specific yeah. concern for the business. And so we'll be a little bit more relaxed in that case. I think that's a very uh, that's a very good point, which is different parts of your system, different stages are yeah. not the same. And I think for, for teams that are more, um, uh, maybe a mature experience with dealing with operational mm. issues with resilience, oftentimes uh, they correlate quite well, which is, you know, mm. if this is a system that uh, you know you need to invest uh, time and efforts to ensure it is resilient more yeah. than maybe other parts of your system. Yeah. Oftentimes that goes hand in hand secure, it's not always, yeah. uh, but oftentimes uh, there's a correlation there and you can apply some of those learnings and classifications uh, to the two of them in a relative ease. Okay. Uh, one quick question before the last one. Why is it called Sneak? And what's the spelling come from? Uh, Sneak is, uh, so it started off because uh, even though developer security was the core idea at Sneak, uh, we thought we will get to runtime security relatively quickly and okay. apply more of an observability approach to it, and we will sneak data out. Uh, and so it's sneak, it's, it's S-N-E-A-K is the yep. way to pronounce it, yep. uh, but we'll spell it with Y like the cool kids do. Uh, so this is like Flickr, you were just sort of playing with nouns? Exactly, yeah, okay. it was just like, you know, make it a bit more memorable. Yeah. Uh, I do like, my previous company was called Blaze, and I had a real hard time in terms of, uh, you know, just of SEO or you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. having having that sort of bubble to the top. Oh, so I wanted nice. a unique yeah. name. And then when I Googled that up, I found out I got an urban dictionary to see if there's like any conflict or anybody called that. I got an urban dictionary uh, hit that said Snake is short for so now you know. So that clinched it. So Snake is just kind so of a good fit, right? So now you know. Oh wow, well, I'm glad I asked that question. What a great what a great answer. Okay, the last question that everybody gets. Who should I ask on the show next and why? So a question I've been uh, very curious about recently is about the intersection of uh, design and AI. And, and I'd be curious to ask Dylan, who I've met a couple of times, but haven't asked him this, uh, what would we, he do differently creating Figma uh, if he was creating it in a Gen AI surrounding? Awesome. And do you know Dylan? Uh, I know him lightly. <laughs> Make a little appeal to the camera there and tell him you should, Dylan, should come on and answer that question and many more. Awesome. Well, thanks, Guy. It's been this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. I, one of the best things about doing this is I get to learn a lot about the culture I want to build at Zooplo as well. So, so many notes here. Thanks. Thanks very much for joining us. Make sure you subscribe. We've got more great guests coming, like Guy, hopefully Dylan as well. Um, thanks for watching Studio Z. Thanks for having me.